If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it out, or a Bible app in your phone, you can go ahead and take it out. Um, it is officially, as of today, uh, the one-year anniversary of lockdowns in Ventura County. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, but this, uh, this same week, this day last year, was the day when we, on a Saturday, like, decided to not meet at our normal building uh, out of just an abundance of precaution and instead meet in Matt's backyard uh, with a little, my iPhone set up, streaming to people who are all in homes kind of around the county. Uh, and it's been a year since we've been able to gather as a church like how we used to. It's been a year since many of us have been engaged in sort of uh, our workplace as normal, uh, family relationships, friends, uh, travel plans have been canceled. It's been a year. And I know COVID's been around a lot longer than a year, but it's been a year since it's deeply affected our habits and rhythms here in Ventura in particular. And uh, not only that, but very much because of that last year, we're in a bit of a moment. And I know you guys feel it. I definitely feel it you know, between the last year or so of COVID, the last, you know, five or so years of the intensity of politics, uh, the conversations around injustice in a variety of different ways, it's kind of felt like, and, and I don't think I'm alone here, that this last couple of years has felt like a bit of a tipping point in so many areas of life, culture, of Christianity, spirituality, the city we live in. But really, this moment that we're all feeling, and maybe some of us can put words to it and sort of put our finger on it, and maybe some of us can't, maybe we would just identify it as sort of this dull aloofness or growing apathy or just some maybe distancing from what has been familiar. This moment that we're all feeling has actually been happening for a couple of decades now. Um, I would say, personally, maybe in the last 20 to 30 years or so. For some, this moment that we're all feeling has actually been the entirety of your Jesus experience. Uh, and for some of you uh, here that are out in the field with us, this has been the entirety of like your life experience as a whole ha has just been this moment that we're all feeling. And while I'm not super old, like I'm not graying quite yet, Sherry says she, she sees gray hair in me, but I don't see it yet in the mirror. And so even though it's like I'm not that old yet, I actually do remember when some of this shift started to happen. It, it's sort of like, I think if you're a millennial, there's a difference in if you were a millennial who grew up with internet in your house or a millennial who like remember getting internet for the first time. I was a senior in high school when we got internet in our house for the very first time and immediately hopped on to like, you know, AIM and MySpace and all that stuff. But before then, we didn't have it. I had to go to a library. I had to use it at school or whatever. In the same way, I think there's some of us here around the field and some of us watching online that sort of perceive this shift in this moment that we have here. This is for me. Thank you, bud. Uh, and there's some of us who have always known this moment as like part of following Jesus. In her fantastic book, The Great Emergence, author and religion professor Phyllis Tickle used the analogy of a rummage sale to describe some of the big shakeups that have happened in the church throughout history. Thank you. Um, and she says about every 500 years, the church has a bit of a rummage sale. And it she uses that to describe some of the changes in church and spirituality, um, really, since the beginning. And Tickle says in her book that historically the church cleans house roughly every 500 years, holding what she calls a giant rummage sale, deciding what to dispose of, what to keep, and how to make room for new things. 
So since the time of Christ, it's happened a few times because she would identify the time of Christ as that first rummage sale, an era Tickle calls the Great Transformation. When a man who was Emmanuel, God with us, created a new understanding of our relationship with God. But 500 years after that, approximately, saw the collapse of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the Dark Ages. And in this period, the church entered an era of of preservation as the church kind of went underground with monks and nuns practicing the monastic traditions to keep the faith alive in abbeys and convents and priories. And then about 500 years after that, the beginning of the new millennium, in about 1054, came the Great Schism, which is when the Christian church split into two, right? The Eastern and Western branches, or what we might know as the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Then about 500 years after that, in the 1500s, is the Reformation, resulted in new branches of Christian tradition, with different understandings of how people can relate to God personally through direct prayer, individual interpretation of the Bible, and the priesthood of all believers, not just a select few. So Tickle says about every 500 years, there was these tectonic shifts in the Christian tradition, resulting in huge changes for both understanding and practice of the Christian faith. So for those of you who are maybe thinking about this 500-year rhythm and thinking about when the last one was, the Reformation, which is in the 1500s, you might think to yourself, are we in the next giant rummage sale of the church? It's been about 500 years since that Reformation. We are living through one of the biggest shifts in communication and information ever via the Internet. And I think it's no coincidence that along those tectonic shifts were also new ways to communicate and innovate ideas. An example is the Reformation might not have happened without the printing press. The ability to, uh, to read the Bible for yourself depends on your ability to actually have the Bible for yourself. And that followed on the Reformation. And I think it's no coincidence that the Internet age that was inaugurated in the late 90s or so follows along this next great rummage sale of the church. So with scholars, academics, cultural commentators, and even those who move in the prophetic agree that this time that we're living through is unique. And that's all to say the moment we're feeling right now is a moment. It's validation and affirmation that maybe some of the uncomfortableness you feel around what has been happening in the church over the last few years or few decades, or the sort of shifting understanding of our faith from maybe us in kind of the under 40 bracket to maybe those who have parents of faith, it's different. It's no joke that it's different. It's no coincidence that it's different. This time is unique, and this time is important. Do you feel that? Is the church ready for the next giant rummage sale? Because I believe we're holding it right now. I believe we've been holding it for the last couple of decades or so. So what do we do with that? How do we process life through that? And better yet, what does any of that have to do with you? And what does that have to do with where we are going as a church, particularly in the next couple of weeks? That's a good question, guys. Thanks for asking. I love when you guys ask questions that tee me up for my next idea here. So I want to share kind of the answer to those two questions. What does that have to do with us? And what does this have to do with where we're heading as a church? And so I want to start with where we are heading as a church. 
Um, so these big Sundays uh, are typically a little less teachy and a little bit more preachy, if you will, where we just try to share a bit of vision for where we're heading together as a church community, uh, not necessarily digging deep in the Greek and exegeting, not like I actually do that, but like digging deep and exegeting kind of a teaching set. It's just more like a rallying call for where our church is headed. And so to that end, we're going to use a bit of Second Peter as our framework today. So if you do have your Bible or Bible app, open up to the book of Second Peter. Now you may know that we as a church, we just wrapped up our study of First Peter. And it's been encouraging, it's been stirring, it's been challenging, it's been really helpful for us as a church to know how to live well, wisely, and holy in the time that we find ourselves today. Now, 2 Peter is this really intense little letter. It's small, it's short. Peter knows he is going to die soon, and so 2 Peter functions as a bit of a passionate farewell speech addressed to the same network of churches in Asia Minor he was writing uh, to in 1 Peter. And we're going to take, as a church community, just the next couple of weeks to unpack what is in Second Peter, a book we might start to read a little bit, get weirded out because it's a little crazy, and then just skip over. But in this book, and here's the big idea of the book of Second Peter, Peter challenges followers of Jesus to continue growing in their faith, love, and service to God as they await Jesus' return and live in a world that is hostile, increasingly hostile to the way of Jesus. And he does this in this really brilliant way that I think will be helpful for us as a church over the next couple of weeks because he actually unpacks that as he's addressing three objections to Christianity that were coming up both in the world and in the churches that he was writing to. They're coming up from skeptics of the faith. They're coming up from hypocrites, those who have power and are abusing it, and those who are earnestly trying to live faithfully and don't know how. And maybe even of those three groups You might find yourself in one of those groups here, skeptical about the things of the Bible or the things of Jesus or the things of the church. Or or maybe you find yourself living with this cognitive dissonance of believing one thing but always finding yourself living another. Or maybe you find yourself like earnestly trying to live faithfully here, but you just feel like it's a losing battle. Peter is writing to those people. And so I believe he is writing to us in those same ideas. And as he's dealing with those objections around sexuality, around power, around the questions of, is Jesus really coming back? And is this whole Jesus thing even real? He brings them and us back to the reality of Jesus's resurrection and the final judgment that is coming. He reminds us that our hope is in God. And in God's time, he will expose evil and injustice, and remove it to make way for this new heaven and new earth that he has promised. And he's doing all of this, Peter is doing all of this in the context of one of the world's greatest superpowers, self-destructing. You up, America? (laughs) This is what Peter's writing to. Rome is collapsing in on itself, politically, economically, socially, physically, racially, spiritually, It is self-imploding. Doesn't it feel occasionally like the world around us is self-destructing? Politically, economically, socially, physically, racially, spiritually. So the people Peter is writing to, their world is falling apart. The things that were all fixed realities and frameworks are crumbling around them. Things can't get any worse for them. 
Christians were reckoning with this idea that Jesus changed everything at the same time that everything was being changed. The world around them was falling apart. Some of the greatest changes in human civilizations were happening whilst Peter was writing his second letter. They can't go around it. They can't go above it, under it. They can't go to the side. They have to go through it. And it's in this context that Peter is writing his encouragements, that these Christians must be resilient if they're going to last. They must be faithful, connected to God, empowered to live differently in a world increasingly not looking like their home anymore. And so today, what I want to do is I just want to take those first few verses of Peter and just peel that open a little bit for us and open the door to where we're going to be walking as a church for the next couple of weeks. The Christian life is not, contrary to what so many believe, a life we live for God. The Christian life is God working for us in Jesus, as well as in us, with us, and through us by the Holy Spirit. Peter sees this as vital for us to understand, that the Christian life is not something you bring and you offer up, and maybe God will accept it. But the Christian life is God has already moved towards you. He has already worked for you. He is working in you and with you and through you. And that is the basis for our understanding of the Christian life. And what I want you to pick up in these first few verses of Peter is how God works for you, in you, with you, and through you to accomplish his will and to equip us to live well, wisely, and holy. So what are we looking out for in the book of Second Peter in these first few verses? That God is working for us, in us, with us, and through us. Well done. Okay, good. It's nice to have some interaction. Ultimately, what Peter is doing is he's going to teach us how to grow in grace grow in our understanding of who God is and how that totally changes how we live here and now. 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter reminds us, lest we forget that it's God who's moved towards us so that we can move towards him not the other way around. Because of God's work for us, we can count on the standing that we have, Peter says, of equal faith, even with him. And it is according to God's righteousness, not our own. God works for you. This is how he opens his letter. You didn't do anything. God and his righteousness has moved towards you, and now you have standing before the living God because of the work of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that he brings. God works for you. And God works in you. Verses 2, 3, and 4. May the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that them, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
Peter highlights the new in us because of God's work for us. We have a new Lord, Jesus. We have a new nature, this divine nature. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. We have a new divine nature. We have a new mind, right? Paul says in in Romans 12 that the renewing of our minds, and Peter affirms that we have a new mind, this knowledge of God and new power. Through the Holy Spirit, we have divine power and we have new desires. We've escaped those sinful desires and now we have something new. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 calls us a new creation, out with the old, in with the new. And this new and the old are at odds. Your new nature hates what you used to love and loves what you used to hate. And here's the hard truth. The closer you get to Jesus, the more this world no longer works for you. It no longer hits the spot. It no longer is the thing that satisfies you, that brings you purpose, that brings you wholeness. You're left with this holy discontentment with life around you. The more you get closer to Jesus, the more this world no longer works for you, and the more people without the Spirit don't even understand you. They don't get you. They, don't, they can't comprehend why the things of this world are not appealing to you. God works for you, and because of that, he gives his Holy Spirit to work in us, bringing us a new Lord, a new nature, a new mind, new power, and new desires. And God works with you. Verses 5 through 9, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, or family affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." Peter's laying out here qualities that for those who follow Jesus are essential and are always increasing. Eight healthy habits, eight healthy qualities that increase our effectiveness and fruitfulness for the kingdom of God. And anyone who lacks these, Peter says, or are not growing in these, are so nearsighted that they're blind. They're so nearsighted, meaning they're so fixed on one thing that they cannot see anything else so fixated on one thing at the expense of everything. What is that one thing that we are so fixated on that we cannot see the bigger picture? Something that you're so fixated on that you've lost your sight. What has convinced you that it's more important than following and obeying Jesus? Because there are definitely competing voices trying. What has convinced you that it's more important than following Jesus? Is it money for you? Like the accumulation of money and wealth? Is it comfort? Like not trying to rock the boat, just live this harmonious, comforting, like padded life? Is it success in, in your particular career, becoming an influencer, being really popular, being really famous, whatever? Is it 
religion, that you've become so fixated on the intricacies of religion you've lost sight of Jesus himself? What's that one thing that Peter says, if we focus too hard, we are so nearsighted that we become blind to everything else? And these habits, according to Peter, keep you from becoming ineffective and unfruitful. It's the opposite of being nearsighted to where we don't see the whole picture. And they are habits. That's why I bring up that word. They're not one-time deals, and it's not these abstract things. It is habits to cultivate in our life. And according to Peter, these make you effective. These make you fruitful. This is the way to effectiveness and fruitfulness. Faith. A growing, deepening trust in Jesus for all of life. Virtue, this growing, consistent character and integrity. Knowledge, increased wisdom, starting with Scripture. Just being in Scripture, being knowledgeable about Scripture. Self-control, having dominion over our own emotions and desires and, and um, impulses. Things like denial and delayed gratification steadfastness, this idea of endurance, perseverance, fortitude, or resilience in the face of hardship. Like, do hardships take you out, or do they make you stronger? Godliness, or another word to swap in there is holiness. Loyalty above God, above all else, or becoming more like God himself. Family affection, love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And love, this This love here is the non-sexual love, non-romantic love, non-selfish care for everybody. Not just your Christian brothers and sisters, but even the strangers, even the aliens, even your enemies. These habits, according to Peter, keep you from becoming ineffective and unfruitful. So, if you feel ineffective and unfruitful for the sake of the kingdom, go back to these habits. Where do you need to grow? What's missing in you? What's deficient in you that needs nourishment? Many of us exchange busyness for fruitfulness. And we fool ourselves. You may be quite busy, but not at all fruitful in the things that actually matter in life. Many of us see pain as punishment or hardships as punishment rather than pruning. A thing that is necessary for a healthy plant or a healthy tree to grow. My orange tree in the back doesn't see pruning as punishment. When we had our gardener come over and prune back our tree, it looked pretty rough. It looked very scaled back. It looked like there was no fruit there. It looked very sad and very pathetic. But what came after that pruning? Bigger, better, and more fruit. Often we see hardships in this life as punishment, conscious or unconsciously. What if we saw it as pruning, things to make us stronger and to, provu- and to produce more, better fruit? God works for you. He has moved towards you. He's working in you, and he's working with you through the power of his Holy Spirit, and God works through you. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm you're calling an election, right? He's affirming that it's God who's called you, it's God who's elected you, it's God who brought you into the family, but be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, those eight healthy habits in the preceding couple of verses, you will never fall. 
For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Confirm your calling election. How? By walking out those eight healthy habits. Peter says, if these qualities, if you're practicing these qualities, you will not fall. So in the rummage sale of Christianity, living through this tectonic shift in the church as we know it, how can we remain effective and fruitful? I believe it's not adding layers to our religion. It's not getting upset about somebody else practicing Christianity differently than us. I do that all the time. Super upset about people who practice church differently than us, Christianity differently than us. I'm always pretty embarrassed about what I read about Christians in the news. But maybe that's not the way forward towards effectiveness and fruitfulness. Maybe it's things like faith and love and self-control and steadfastness and godliness. Make every effort, Peter says, to pursue faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, family affection in the church, and love for everybody. Peter in the next couple of verses, in 12 through 15, is his stated intent for the letter. He says, this is why he's writing, but I want you to notice a word that comes up frequently. Remember. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, those eight healthy habits. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. He knows he's going to die soon. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Remember, reminder, recall. Peter says, do not forget these eight healthy habits that are crucial for your fruitfulness, your effectiveness. Which means your fruitfulness and your effectiveness is not dependent on how good you are in front of a crowd how busy you are with things that feel good, how much money you're making or how much success you have, those do not matter in the kingdom of God. According to Peter, what matters is faith, virtue, godliness, self-control, knowledge, steadfastness, affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and love for all people. This is our metric for success. But as we need to be reminded of these qualities, and we need to know that it's our responsibility to practice and pursue them, we also need to remember that the great message of the Bible is that God himself provided a standing for sinners like you and me. Not through our own self-generated efforts, but through a righteousness or right standing granted freely in grace to us, achieved by Christ on our behalf. God is working for us in Jesus, as well as in us, with us, and through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. So our venture over the next couple of weeks is to grow in grace, grow in our understanding of the grace that's been shown to us, and grow in our obedience and pursuit of these virtues in light of the grace that we've been shown. This is what we're going after. As we kind of lead up to Easter, thinking about that amazing day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, as we wrestle through the cultural moment that we're in, 
with COVID, things are maybe starting to reopen. Vaccines are kind of out there. People are meeting, gathering again. Things feel like the world may feel like it's going back to normal. But might I put a challenge before you? As the world is going back to normal, let's us not go back to normal. Because I think normal is thinking busyness is fruitfulness. Taking commitment lightly. Taking love for one another lightly. I think normal is looking out for ourselves first. Self-preserving, self-surviving, self-preservation. I think those things are normal. Can we as a church rally around this idea that as the world is going back to normal, we don't. We instead choose to pursue and practice faith, virtue, knowledge, godliness, steadfastness, self-control, brotherly and sisterly love, and love for everybody around us. Like what if those were the things, if no one knew anything about our little church community here, but they knew we like loved people really well who were not like us. Or we like really took care of one another in the church as brothers and sisters. Or if we were virtuous, had consistent character and integrity. What if, what if in your workplace you were the one who could be counted on because you were actually, you had character, you had integrity? Like what if those things marked our church? I think that would be pretty amazing. I think that would be like revolutionary in our city. I think that would be a very credible and legitimate witness to your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, who only know about Jesus through what they read in the news, who only know about the church through what they read in the news. Like what if we lived as that counter witness? And what if as the world is going back to normal, we didn't, but we set out on a new way? This is our journey over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to pray in a second. We're going to worship some more. But next week, we're going to head back into our backyards, back into our houses, back into our online communities. Um, And what if, like, you actually showed up? Yeah, I'm looking at you. (laughs) What if you actually showed up, but showed up, like, ready to engage and contribute? Not because of, like, guilt or shame or because you have, like, a job or Matt asked you to do something or I didn't, but because you genuinely loved and cared for the people you're doing life with. What if you actually showed up ready, like, with your Bibles, so you can actually grow in your knowledge of Jesus through the scriptures. Like, what if this characterized our church for the next couple of weeks? We're going to unpack 2 Peter together. It's going to get real weird if you haven't read 2 Peter before. You're going to notice the second letters are always very strange. 2 Thessalonians, 2 Peter, very weird stuff happening. We're going to dig into it, but it's going to help us grow in grace. I think it's going to help us not go back to normal as the rest of the world is going back to normal. That's my invitation for you guys. It's my challenge for you guys. I hope through the power of the Holy Spirit, there was something in there that was stirring, encouraging, convicting, bringing you closer to Jesus and challenging the way we live. I'm going to pray, and then uh, our crew is going to lead us through a bit more singing and response, and I'll kind of talk about how we respond here in just a moment. But uh, Jesus, so, so thankful for my brothers and sisters out on the lawn and online watching from wherever they are at so thankful that you have brought this little church community together. Thankful that you are doing something really special in this church. Um, I'm thankful that we have the privilege of living through one of these tectonic shifts 
in the life of the church at large. Would you help us to not resist the change you want to bring, but actually be at the forefront of it? Would you help us embrace the things that maybe need to be cleared out of the church? Would you help us embrace the things that maybe need to be added in, fine-tuning, polished up? Would you help us remember our first love? Would you help us remember the things that actually matter as we think about effectiveness and fruitfulness in your kingdom? Would you help us to not be so easily duped by the things that convince us they are the most important, that we become so nearsighted we're blind to the kingdom of God? Peter ends his letter by saying, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.